So I feel sort of strange standing up here because it seems like it should be more informal, but we'll see how this goes. Yeah, I may just pull up a chair at this point. Um, I also want to apologize. I have a cold, so if my voice gives out, you know, I'm doing the hot tea thing, so hopefully I'll make it through. Okay, so saving your sanity through better client relations or how to stop apologizing, say no tactfully and no one to shut up and listen. This, of course, comes from personal experience. These are things that I've learned through my own time doing this. And it's great to be here at the IHOP because I used to work across the street. Well, that's actually my business card from when I was in Sunnyvale. But I used to work across the street at the McAfee Towers, at the Red Towers there at the corner. And so when we would have virus outbreaks or whatever, we would get paged at 2 in the morning, have to run into the office, go through crisis mode for six hours, and then we'd roll over here for caffeine and breakfast. So, you know, it's very familiar. It's like, oh, we're at the IHOP in Santa Clara. Do you know where that is? I'm like, oh, yeah, I know where that is. I've been there many a time. So, yes, and I also at one point had the coolest title ever. Um, <laughs> and I did not create that for myself. My boss did that for me. <laughs> so, you know, an increasing number of companies are looking to freelancers or agencies to outsource their content, uh, mostly because, you know, they don't want to manage large in-house companies, large in-house groups of uh, writers but also because project basis, you know, things come, things go. You don't want to pay somebody for the lulls. It's easier to, you know, bring somebody on board. And so my reason for going freelance was this guy. That was when he was seven, because I really like that picture. He's a goofball. Um, so, you know, I went freelance because of him, also because of a layoff, but mostly because of him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my whole concern when I went freelance was how people would perceive my business, right? Because in the early days, I really struggled and overcompensated to make sure that people thought that my business looked like this instead of this, right? It really did look more like the other. I mean, I had daycare, I had that, but a lot of people try to manage this kind of thing where the kid is screaming, the Cheerios are in your hair, you know, like it, it's just kind of chaos. And you know, he's always found it very interesting when I talk about, you know, because I, I tell him about what my talks are and, you know, he'll hear me walking through things in the office as I'm running through how slides transition and that sort of thing. And he says, you know, I don't understand why people need help with this. You know, this is pretty straightforward, you know, but mom, you know, your kids are always going to need help, you know, obviously. You know, doing things gives, you know, every five-year-old solder circuit boards. <laughs> And, you know, you always have to take care of yourself. So what's really important is that you set boundaries. He told me this when he was like seven. You know, like, it's really important that you set boundaries with your clients. And I'm like, well, okay, so you have just completely boiled everything that I talk about down to, like, the essence of it, right? You need a wall. You need boundaries. You need to tell the clients what you need, and you need to find out what they need, and you got to set a wall in between. But, of course, we're not here to do, like, cheesy platitudes, you know. We're here to talk about, like, really how to make that happen. And all this comes from hindsight, right? It's the things that I've done wrong and the things that I've done right over the last decade or so. And things that, you know, when I look back, I, I appreciate more than I do in the day-to-day. -day. So my business, we'll talk about that. Um, you know, I was in-house in 2006, which seems like both yesterday and, you know, three million years ago. Um, there are things I learned in-house that apply to being freelance, but then there's so much more that you just don't know until you're in it, right? And independent years are really intense. I feel like they're like dog years, you know? 
And so at this point, you know, I should be good for retirement. Which, as I was looking into this, I thought, you know, I need some AARP covers, right? So I'm like, Jesus, Ron, a cover, Ron Howard's on the cover of AARP. Which, all right, I can kind of let that go because, you know, Opie and, you know, black and white TV, I can't I can, I can get behind that. But like, Jesus, this was like, this is like six years old. He's been like, I can't handle this. And apparently this month, um, Luke Perry, yeah, Dylan from 90210 is, is like on the cover of AARP magazine. So, you know, my mind is blown. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> By the time you get to AARP age, you know a little something about relationships. And this is really what client relations is about. It's about building relationships with your clients. Please hold. <clears throat> so as I'm looking for an analogy, for what it's like when you're just starting out. I came up with this now. Bear with me here. It's a lot like being a teenager <laughs> and starting out with sex. Because you don't know what you're doing. You assume that everyone else knows lots more than you do. You don't know how to ask for your what you need because you don't even know what you need. You feel awkward saying no. Right? All of these things, like, they apply because it's all about the relationship, right? It's all about the give and take. So as you get more experience in life, as with other things, you go from having confidence to, like, big, bold confidence, right? You start to know what you want and how to get it. Like, I love that, you know, like the shadow, right? So. It's a big circle. The more experience you have, the more co the confident you are. The more confidence you have, the more people value you. The more valuable you see, appear, the more successful you are. The more successful you are, the more experience you get, and you know, follow the circle around, right? And as one of my childhood friends always said, anything worth doing is worth doing badly in the beginning. <laughs> so we'll talk about my first time, and I'm talking about professionally. <laughs> But this was one of my first freelance projects, and it was a white paper about um, XML-based uh, recipe editor tools uh, for streamlining the pharmaceutical process. Um, so when you're developing pharmaceuticals, of course, there's a lot of trial and error, what works, what doesn't. And each group apparently like does that in isolation, and that knowledge goes right out the window with each product. So having that shared standardization was a really big deal. So anyway. Light reading, I know, but this was really hard and intense and took a ton of time. And like an idiot, I billed hourly <laughs> and a low hourly at that because I was starting out and I didn't know any better. And worse, I was apologetic for no good reason. I mean, I'm turning around drafts in 24 to 36 hours and apologizing for not being faster or apologizing for asking perfectly reasonable questions or not knowing more or not being an expert in the field. And I was really scared that they were going to figure out that I was some sort of a fraud, even though when they contacted me, they knew I wasn't a subject matter expert. They just came on the recommendation of someone who knew my writing and somebody who knew my capabilities and figured, out, figured that I'd learned it on the fly. But I was so scared because I was starting out that like, what if they realize I've never done this before? What if they realize I don't know? What if, God, I feel like a teenager. I feel stupid. I feel awkward, right? So let's cue the sad trombone. In the end, I ended up charging just a fraction of the market rate, less than 20% of what they could have and should have paid. And I apologized for it, and it kills me to this day. 
So what was I apologizing to them for? I mean, if anything, I should have been apologizing to my family. I was working nights and weekends. I mean, too many nights and weekends is any nights and weekends, if you ask me. Because the flexible hours that I wanted to spend with him, that wasn't happening. And I was scared to death that they were going to catch me. You know, I'm a slave to my computer. What if they got caught doing something radical like leaving my desk to go have lunch? Or picking my son up at 4.45 instead of 5 o'clock, you know, ooh. So I felt like I was hiding behind a mask and pretending that everything was great when really I was stressed beyond belief. And the more stressed I got, the less valuable I felt. And so when you're underpriced, you're undervalued, and therefore you set your prices lower because you're not valuing your own work, and therefore you continue to be underpriced, and hmm, this is a problem, right? So I had to ask myself, who's in control of your life? Because, <laughs> see, I, I always know who my people are when you know, they, they smirk at this. So ideally, there's balance in the relationship, right? So it's like a marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today, you know? But compromise is needed in any relationship. It can't always be one party that's dominating the relationship. It ceases to be a marriage and turns into bullying, right? So you've got to stand up for yourself, because otherwise you're going to look at your, this and you're going to say to myself, my god, what have I done? But in a lot of cases, we only realize that in hindsight. So here's one of my examples. Um, in 2008, I'd been doing this for about two years. It was the eve of the first creative freelancer conference. Has anybody gone to that? It's sort of merged into a larger conference now, and it's not the way it used to be. But it was the first creative freelancer conference, and it was largely for designer types, um, but it was all about the business of freelancing. So it was this huge thing for me. But a friend of mine kind of talked me into going. She'd worked for the publication that was putting this on. And I had this crisis of confidence going into this, right? <laughs> I had boundary problems. I had issues saying no. And I'd gotten this contract with a 500-pound gorilla of a company who turned out to be the client from hell. Like, from hell. <laughs> I've never had another one like it before or since. On paper, it sounded great. It was boatloads of money. Yay! Except nothing I ever did was good enough, even when it was exactly what they asked for. <laughs> you worked for Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Not far off. So I was a complete stress ball. And it's the night before the conference, and I was up working until after 3 in the morning. And I had to get up at 4.30 for my flight. So I rolled into Chicago for this conference, completely bleary-eyed, miserable, and not having any idea what to expect out of this. So as speaker after speaker got on the stage, I, I had this consuming thought of, you know, I just wish I knew what they know. But then I realized, I do. It's not rocket science. I didn't have the follow through, right? Did I have a good contract that protected me? No, not yet. Did I have an accountant? Oh, a logo, a website, a marketing message. Well, you know, I was going to get to all of that eventually, right? So was I really taking my business, my professional life seriously? And I really had this epiphany while I was there about 
what was needed to be successful. I mean, even when I was in-house, I wasn't the kind who marketed myself. I wasn't the one who took responsibility for things, even when they were my things, because I always gave credit to the team. I was just that kind of person, right? And so, you know, it was that revelation of, well, I gotta learn how to do this. This is, this is a skill that I really need. I mean, this is, this is critical if I wanna keep doing this. I mean, even something just as simple as keeping your LinkedIn profile up to date, right? I wasn't even staying up on that. I wasn't continuing to network with colleagues. I, it just was like, it was just so obvious to me. Like sitting at this conference, it was like, oh, right? So the two great revelations that came out of this conference for me were that, oh, thank God, others make mistakes and big, hairy, awful mistakes at that. Vastly worse than what I was doing. And yet they survived and recovered and prospered in a lot of cases. And this was endlessly reassuring. <laughs> because up to this point, I was feeling very much like this. And revelation number two is that you can buy your clients. Ah, this is where, you know, the sun starts beaming down, you know, like the heavens have parted, the angels have wept, you know. And I felt like this huge weight had been lifted from my shoulders because it had not, like, Obviously, I know you can fire clients, but it hadn't really dawned on me that practically, like, you can really do this, right? By the time this all came to me, it was like a shock. Like, I, I could practically fly, you know? So <laughs> I went up, there was, we were, in the, we were in the Hyatt in Chicago, and there was this connector between the two towers, and I, like, busted out of the session. I went up to this, found a quiet spot in this connector, and I called up, and I fired my client, scared to death, like, heart in my throat. And I never felt so good in my life. Like, I could have flown my way back through Chicago, like, hi, everybody, this is wonderful. I fired a client. It's the best thing in the world. But, of course, you can't forget. <laughs> the math says you can't fire all the clients, you know, because 10% of nothing is still nothing. And people have asked me in the past, like, well, so how do you know when it's time to fire your client? And, you know, there's always that moment where you're like, oh, they're making me crazy. They're, you know, they're really stressful. They're, you know. But for me, <laughs> the experience is if you actually utter the words, I think I need to fire them, it's time to fire them. Because at that point, you have said those magic words and you're just looking for validation. <laughs> so no client relationship should ever make you feel like a prisoner. I feel weird because I'm like looking. I, like, I don't know which is better for me to look at because I feel like I'm looking at you guys. Um, <laughs> So there will, I mean, they're always going to be bigger, right? I mean, you're one person, maybe a small agency, maybe you're five people, right? But they're going to be bigger, stronger, wealthier than you are. And it should never feel like you're, they're bullying you. They have a need you can provide. There should be balance. And what keeps the balance of power in the relationship is this. It's the contract, right? It's the prenup in your relationship. It's what enables you to get paid even if they flake out. It's what in limits the number of revisions. It enables you to push back because it's negotiated in moments of calm. You can't talk about deadlines and you know things like that when they sat on something for three weeks and now they come back to you with their hair on fire going, deadline! It's like, nope, sorry, we've got turnaround times in here. I've got a week built in. But as we've negotiated, the rush fees you know, kick in. If you'd like me to get it done in two, I can, you know, invoke the rush fee. It's amazing how those deadlines get much less critical when a rush fee is involved. So it also <laughs> brilliantly, I've heard this brilliantly termed as the Lebowski problem. 
new shit has come to light, you know, like the scope creep, the crisis, the deadlines, you know, like the Lebowski problem covers all of that. But the contract also enables the most powerful word in our language, which is no. And it makes it easier to say no. It takes the discussion out of your hands because it's not about you just being a jerk. It's about you saying, well, we've already discussed this. We've worked this out and we agreed to this. You agreed to this. It seemed perfectly reasonable, and now I'm sorry, but the contract says no. And I always think of this episode of The Simpsons. Does anybody remember this one? So Marge goes to work at the real estate agency, and Lionel Hutz is working there, and you know, he says, Marge, we gotta, we gotta talk about the truth. And he says, you know, there's the truth, and the truth. And he's like, you know, look at this house, you know. Oh, it's so small. It's cozy, you know. This house is on fire. Motivated seller, you know. <laughs> so, but it helps you, the contract helps you to structure the truth. And it's a softer no. It's a softer sell than it is if you don't have it in place. You've got something to push back on, right? But you only learn this through trial and error. And in some cases, lots of error. But, you know, we learn from our mistakes. And if you're lucky, you can learn from other people's mistakes and you don't have to make them yourself. But I have a list of some of my top mistakes, um, which include uh, talking too much. So classic story is um, I had been, I just started out and I was subcontracting to an agency and they were working with a very small medical device company. So they bring me in as the content producer and they go in, this is the first meeting. Now they've talked to these people before, but it's the first time I've gone into the meeting. We sit down at the big boardroom table, giant boardroom table, even though there's like two of them and three of us. And uh, you know, they got it on clearance somewhere, right? And so you know, we go in and the guy who's the project lead on my side, he goes in and he's like, you know, and we'll do this for you and we'll do this and we'll do this. And he's writing it all out on the whiteboard and they're looking excited. They're thinking this is fantastic. And he says, you know, and, you know, the great news is we can do all of this for $5 million. And the CEO's face just falls. And he's like, well, yeah, that, that all looks really good. Our current valuation is $1.3 This is all the money we have in our initial funding. Like, we could sell our cars, we could sell our houses, we could sell our children and our kidneys, and we still don't have $5 million. Like, this is never going to happen. I mean, this is a really great plan to work towards maybe in 10 years, but right now we need a small chunk of that, right? Oh, no problem, no problem, we understand. Every time we talked to these people on the phone or every time we went into a meeting, this guy who was our project lead would go in with the same, and we're go we can do this, and we can do... And they would literally sit there like this, like, we've, we've already discussed this. We've completely already discussed this. And it was a real revelation for me because it was so obvious to me that he just wanted to be the smartest person in the room. He wanted the big ideas. He wanted the big payout of like, here's, here's my genius, you know, bow, and, bow before my genius, right? But he had no idea, like he just wasn't even hearing their feedback on the other side. And it wasn't even just the money feedback. It was like the nuance of, you know, we're really concerned about funding, you know, we're hoping to get this and maybe we'll get that. And like, he's missing all of these cues, he's missing all of these subtexts 
because he's not listening, because he's doing all the talking. And that was really important to me to learn that, you know, don't be the smartest person in the room. Listen to people. And when you listen, they'll think that you're smart because you're just echoing the things back that they've already said. And you already know more because you've actually heard what they're saying and you can address their needs. Stake number two, the apologizing. I talked about that a little already. I mean, don't be submissive. If you really screw up, then by all means, you know, offer a sincere, heartfelt apology, but never apologize for your inability to work a miracle. Mistake number three, which was a long time coming, saying yes instead of no. Oh, God, please. Like, if your gut says no, don't say yes. Your gut knows. My kid knows. Um, I think we underestimate the power of our gut instinct. You know, most of my bad decisions have come in opposition to my gut instinct. If I ignore it, bad things happen, right? I saw this once and I had to include it. Today I'm setting boundaries and saying no. I have no idea what the heck the point of this was, but I just love the fact that Skeletor is all like, today I am setting boundaries. Another mistake that I learned really quickly answering the phone. And that seems like a weird one, except when somebody calls you, it's an interruption in your thought process. Now, it's one thing if you're working in a single company and everything is about the thing that you're doing. But when you've got four or five clients with different things, if somebody calls you up and says, hey, so I wanted to check in with you on such and so, I'm not in their mindset. I'm working on something else for somebody else. My brain is elsewhere. These are the moments where I have made the dumb mistakes by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that's fine. And then 10 minutes later, when I go back and look at the file, I go, that wasn't, like, I should never have agreed to that because I didn't have it in front of me and I wasn't thinking it through. Every call that comes into me goes into voicemail. I may call you back in two minutes. Oh, sorry, I was on the other line. But it gives me a chance to pull up the most recent set of emails, the last version of the file, take a look at things, refresh my memory, and I know where things stand before we have any conversation about anything. Mistake number five is the one that took me a while to learn, but God, I got there. Billing hourly versus per project. So one of the things that's the really hard way, I found clients will balk at your hourly rate. Whatever your hourly rate is, they're gonna balk at it. You know, my hourly rate's $25. Oh my God, that's ridiculous. You know, it's like, no, it's not. Or my, my, my hourly rate's $400. Doesn't matter, whatever the, whatever the number is, they're gonna balk at it. The fact is, they don't really have any sense of how long it's gonna take you to do something. But you can say to them, well, this project's gonna cost $10,000, and they go, I got that in the budget, yeah, okay. Well, maybe that works out to be $600 an hour for you, because maybe you know how to do it, and you know how to do it well. Bonus for you. They're willing to pay that money, whereas when they look at your hourly rate, they do the math in their head and they go, well, I make this much and divided 52 weeks times 40 hours a week time. Yeah, I only make $47 an hour. Well, why is she making so much more? Well, no, you also have benefits and you also have taxes taken out and you also, like, it's, it's a totally different process, right? But nobody ever balks at your, hour, at your flat rate because they have the budget to do a project and it works out. So, and the other mistake that I have learned, thinking you're alone. I mean, look around the room, look around different organizations that you're part of. 
you're not the only one. I mean, somebody once said, you know, freelancing is like being alone together. You know, <laughs> like we've all had these same experiences in isolation and think we're the only ones when really we've all been through a version of the client didn't pay, the deadline changed, the scope creep affected it. You know, we've all been through it, but yet you think that you're the only one who's ever endured these problems, right? So results for me, I have balance now most weeks, more or less. Some weeks are better than others. There are still some really crappy weeks where I feel completely out of control. But in general, it gets better every year, right? I have more confidence. I know not to play the games. I know what to ask for. I know what they will and will not go for. I know to go for a flat rate versus the hourly. And I know the things that work for me. Usually, but you know, for the most part, I can fake it and be like, yes, I'm a superhero. I've got this down, right? And one of the things that helps me to fake it is if I'm negotiating with a lawyer, I have four inch heels in my office so that I'm six foot five when I'm done. That shows in my voice when I'm pacing my office negotiating <laughs> because, you know, you're not going to take any crap from me when I'm six foot five. Um, but, you know, these are the ways that I fake it and cheat to make it, to, to show the confidence that I, I have that, you know, maybe needs a little bit more of a, a little boost to get there, right? And, you know, I've done a pretty good job of learning from my colleagues. You learn a lot of tricks from people in this room or from your LinkedIn groups or from people at other conferences. And you'd be amazed at how much people are willing to share because you're surrounded by an amazing network of people, not just the people around you, but that, that larger group, people on Twitter, people on LinkedIn, people on Facebook groups, whatever it may be. Um, especially STC, there's some great people that I've met through STC over the years, long before I was you know, heavily involved in it. I, I made some really good friends and colleagues through that. So meet them, have coffee, have beer, share your ideas, and share your war stories. And with that, I will not miss a good chance to shut up. Let me down my teeth. What, what, um, what draws you to being a consultant instead of a full-time employee? Flexibility and the ability to choose my projects. Um, I like the fact that I can do a wide variety of things. I mean, when you're in-house, you tend to do a lot of the same thing over and over. And maybe there's a slight variation, but it's a lot of the same. Um, but I like working for a lot of different people and meeting a lot of different ideas. I mean, I, I think that cross-pollination is really good for me. And especially since I work in multiple industries um, between healthcare and tech, I, I feel like that helps me to sort of stretch my brain differently than it would or did when I was in-house in any one area. That works for me. Yeah. After, you, um, <coughs> after you had that metamorphosis, you come out on the other side of this maelstrom of a little bit more perspective about your worth versus what, how, you should be, how you'd like to be treated mm -hmm. as, as a uh, contractor. Um, or so what? what are some circumstances under which you would just not accept so that's a whole other talk. Um, <laughs> that's the one I gave last week. Um, so let's say a project comes in, um, somebody's contacted me and they're, they're looking for my skills to do a job. 
So one of the things that I start doing, first of all, is you know, I, I research the company. You know, maybe it's one that I don't know. Like, so how, what's, the, what's the situation on the company? How are they doing financially? What's the word on the street? What does Glassdoor say about them as being a good place, place to work or people to work with? Um, are they the kind of grinder that's going to have, you know, is the person that's my contact today going to be gone in three months? You know, like, is it that kind of environment? So I start to, I start to look into that stuff. I also research the person who's going to be my contact. Um, <coughs> what kind of connection can I make with them? And it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're, you know, some revolutionary anything. It's just about how, what kind of relationship can I build? Because once I've got that relationship with them, it's so much easier. They tell me so much more. I can get more information that I need to gauge what kind of project we're going to be dealing with, what's the pain in the ass factor that's involved in it, you know, how many people are going to be, in, be reviewing it, you know, how difficult is legal, where, where's their pain point, right? But they're more likely to tell me that if we have some sort of a connection. So one of the things that I'll do, like if you contact me, I'll you know Google you, and you know, just even things like the 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 um, what is that called? The, like the cover photo on your Twitter or your Facebook or whatever it may be, it tells me a lot about what sports teams you like, where you like to vacation, whether your family is important as a priority in your life. Right? I can use that to make connections. Maybe you said, you know, maybe you were on Twitter and you said something about your recent trip to Tahoe. Well, now I know that when I start my conversation with you, I can just throw in there, you know, oh, hey, it's Monday. Hey, how was your weekend? I already know what the answer is. I already know where we're going with this. But I know how to seed the conversation so that you think, we've got a connection here, right? And I don't have to think on the fly. It's not putting all the pressure on me to make the small talk. I've already got some of that embedded in, right? So it's things like that that I'll do, you know, also, you know, people, you know, are they, am I connected to them on LinkedIn? Do I know somebody who knows them, right? How do I get that information out there? So I can sort of find the red flags as I go. Um, and none of it takes all that long. And then once I've got the sort of background done, maybe 15 minutes of Google, right? Um, then I have a call with them. Now, I hate talking on the phone, but I will spend 15 minutes on the phone listening to what they have to say because then I can hear where their pain is, right? So, you know, now we've made this connection. I can find out whether or not their pain is um, they're desperate because there's a product launch coming or maybe it's their personal MBOs that they need to meet because my God, you know, I might not get my bonus if we don't hit this, right? I'm desperate here. I'm personally desperate here, you know? Um, Maybe it's that jerk in the cubicle over there in the next department who's been putting pressure on me and making trouble with my boss, right? Whatever that is, the more you let them talk and the more you listen, the more will come out. One of the most valuable things in the world is to say, if I fall silent, I'm typing. I just can't talk and type at the same time, so just give me a moment, I'll catch up with you. People talk to fill the silence. They'll say all sorts of things to fill the silence. <laughs> Filling the silence is really good for me because all of this is information that I can use to decide whether or not there are red flags that should concern me before I generate a proposal. And in all of my proposals, I have out clauses. So, you know, should things just go horribly wrong? Should my contact person leave and I'm left with a jerk? Should the, you know, company go, haywire, should there be a complete change in things, I'm protected. And, you know, they have a way out too because, you know, 
sometimes the relationship isn't going to work out. You know, it's the dating game. You don't, you know, you don't know. So, how how often do you deal with people who are willing to sign your contract rather than bringing out their standards? Depends on the size of the company, but basically what I did with um, my lawyer when I first started out was he created my contract and gave me a list of things to look for in their contract. And, you know, here's an indemnity clause. Don't, don't sign these things. Here's the paragraph that you want to sub out, you know, cut and paste. You know, I don't, I reject this. I say this. So I know what to look for now um, in a way that I didn't prior to that, um, but it's also helped me to, you know, be able to have the confidence to negotiate with the lawyers because I can say, I'm sorry, my attorneys advised me that I can't sign this as is. Well, you know, you're just one person. Yeah, I am, but I can still say no. And I've had really big companies back down because I've said, you know, sorry, you know, that, that doesn't work for me. I can't accept those terms. So how do you develop this to charge more, to say no, to be you know, more professional. What, do you sometimes just, just, when you're starting out, you have to bluff it? <clears throat> yeah, you have to bluff it. <laughs> um, and it helps to start out, it, it's harder to like increase your rates for somebody you know, who you've already worked with and you have a precedent with, than it is to start with somebody new. If you've got somebody new, it's easier to start and say, well, my rate is. Because they don't have, they don't, there's no basis there, you know. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, this project which I maybe charged five thousand dollars for in the past, now I'm going to charge seventy five hundred dollars for. But you don't know that, right? Um, and that's how you start testing the waters. Like I, my my rule for a while was, every time something would come in, bump up the rate until people started pushing back. And it took a really long time before people started pushing back. And I was like, well, damn, I've been selling myself short. <laughs> you know? um, but that was, um, that was a really big deal for me. And it helped, to, it helped to be able to use the new clients that way. And then with the older clients, I gave them a runway and said, you know, you know it's June of this year. Um, I haven't raised my rates in a couple of years. I need to readjust for market rates. Um, so starting next year, there's going to be a pricing shift. I wanted to let you know ahead of time so you can plan ahead for budgeting. Um, so you've got six months runway to know to know about this. But I'm going to you know I'm going to be increasing. And then when I would turn in my invoices for that year, I would show the price that they would normally be charged with their discount for the remainder of the year, and the price that I'd been you know charging them in the past to reemphasize you know like wow we've we've really been getting a deal here because this is the market rate. Speaking of rates, so the STC salary database provides some rates for contractors and freelancers in this area. Do you, are you by chance familiar? And can you say whether that's I accurate? I don't know. I okay. I don't go by that. Um, mostly because I find that it's pretty polarized. You get your really high end people and your really low end people, but you don't get a lot of the middle. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the median is fifty percent of high and low. It, you know, I mean, it could be that it skews in one direction or the other. Um, I think it's just you got you to gotta test it out. You got to test it out for yourself, but don't be afraid to go high. Because, you know, especially if they've been dealing with agencies or larger groups, they're used to paying a hell of a lot more than what you're going to charge. Yeah? How did you start? How did you find clients when you were starting? 
So I had the advantage of um, my last company uh, was a shutdown situation, so 400 people scattered to the wind. So um, I had a network of 400 people who went everywhere. Um, but I also did a really good job because there was a layoff involved of putting it out there um, that, you know, hey, you know, to my, to my LinkedIn network, you know, hey, there's been a layoff. Um, and I didn't put it in context of me. I put it in context of my group because I had a group at the time. Um, I have some really excellent, my, my company is shut down. It's moving out of state. Um, I have some really excellent people who are looking for work or freelance opportunities. If you're looking for anybody in this area of expertise, contact me. Well, now it seems altruistic, you know? but it also, I mean, it did play out that like some of them, you know, were better fits for other people. Um, but, you know, it, it, it also was a good way for me to get word out there without it seeming like, hello, I'm scared to death, you know? Um, but I also did have a, it helped that I also had a long runway with the layoff because we had to train our replacements in Denver. Um, but it's, um, you know, it, 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 was a, it was a good way because, you know, because everybody was going everywhere and we were all very willing to help each other out, you know, as we all went to our various places. Um, but, you know, that helped and, you know, again, just, you know, helping others helps you. So how, how much experience did you have before this big layoff when you became a freelancer? Um, so that was... Fifteen years into my career, so I'd done some tech, I'd done some healthcare, I'd done some healthcare IT, which was sort of the crossover between the two. Um, and so, I mean, I had some experience, but you know, it wasn't like I was the world-renowned expert in any one particular topic. So, I know you've been trying to raise your hand, but then you were busy. <laughs> well, um, so, uh, as a freelancer, uh, at least when you first start. Said and for starting out, you asked for contacts with your other people in your group to get uh, some uh, to get work, right? So afterwards, how did you build upon that to get more contract, and how do you advertise yourself in a way so that people can get noticed? So one of the things that really helps is that the average tenure of anybody at a company is between two to three years. So I've been doing this for about 10 years now, which means that places I've gone, like I now have the co legacy contact, like somebody has moved on from company A, I still have contact, legacy contacts at company A, but they've moved on to company B and company C since. So now I've got, like the, the network just spiders out from there. And then these people recommend me to other people who, I mean, it's amazing once you get some traction, how little marketing you have to do. I mean, I do talks like this, which work out, you know, Tom and I were talking about this earlier, you know, it's not about somebody comes up to me immediately after a conference and says, you know, I have a project for you, you're the right thing, you know, like, let's talk and let's sign the deal now. But six months from now, a year from now, you'd be amazed at how many people will, you know, I'll get a contact from somebody who'll say, hey, you know, Mary Jo was at your, your, your talk in Denver. Um, she says, you're exactly the person I need. I looked at your website, you know, it looks fantastic. Let's talk. I don't know this person at all. I barely even know the person that's the contact, you know, but they know me and they feel they know me because they feel like we've made a connection through this, right? So that's one of the ways I do it. <clears throat> so how, how did you uh, wind up getting on the STC board of directors? 
I was nominated. <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, mm, strange and magical things. I don't know. <laughs> Were you a chapter official? I had, been, I had been on the uh, education committee. And um, I also had been, I did um, last year's, um, what is the word for that, summit um, proposal reviewer, you know, session reviewer. Um, so I've, I mean, I've done stuff in STC before, but I haven't been like chapter president or anything like that. But, um, but you see the value in, in the STC if you're a director. So tell us about why, what value you see out of, I mean, does it help your, your freelance business or? or so, you know, people say to me, you know, so, you know, were you, did you become a director because it's going to benefit you professionally? Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, I feel like it's less, I, I feel like I'm probably at least in the short term going to get less out of it than what I put into it. Um, but I think it's important. I've gotten a lot of benefit, educational benefit over the years from professional societies uh, that I've been part of. Whether that's networking, whether that's the education, whether that's, yeah, I've learned a lot from the people that I've met It's in various professional societies. Of the ones that I've belonged to, STC in general has it together more than a lot of them. Like these are my people, like I, I, I go to, it is in a way, it is in a way because I mean professionally I should be more affiliated with medical writers than tech writers just because like that's like 60-40 in my, in my split. Um, but the medical writers, you know, we don't, we don't do things like that because that's just not the way it's been done. We, you know, things are different that way. And I was on an education committee for them and it was, you know, we were trying to do online education. Oh my God, just push that rock up the hill. Cause you know, it was such a challenge and because that's not the way it's done. Whereas STC, you know, you have an idea, why not try it? If it doesn't work, you know, then we don't do it again. And I think that's the difference between healthcare, which is by nature a very slow, methodical, regulated industry, and tech, which is cutting edge, move, 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 get it done. But I, I feel like I wanted to give something back and, and create a better or more sustainable long-term organization for other people to get what I got out of different organizations. Does that make sense? Um, so, you know, am I getting, am I getting a lot out of it immediately? No, but that's not the point. Um, I, you know, I think when you're doing something like this, it's not really about you. It's about the bigger picture. I spent a lot of time in, uh, in <clears throat> clinical laboratory computing early in my career. And when I worked for a clinical laboratory, uh, I, have, I have a PhD in mathematics. And, and so, but I always made them page me as Dr. Medio. <laughs> <laughs> All the medical writers would love you. <laughs> it's all about the letters after your name. Right. Yeah, there are very few of them that are anywhere nearby. So like one of my clients happens to be in Denver and I was in Denver last week. Now I've worked with them for six years. I had never seen their offices because I haven't been to Denver in six years. So 
I went in a day early, I rented a car, I met, made plans to go out to the office, and you know, we hung out, we had lunch, I met everybody in the office. You know, I got to you know, sit around and have some coffee and have lunch and you know, chat about things. And you know, it was a good way to just sort of build that relationship and build that rapport while I was in town. Plus, they wanted to hear about the type of stuff that I was doing. Like, well, what are you, what are you, what are you going to the conference about? What are you talking about? What's going to, go, what's going to happen there? Oh, because to them, it was a way to sort of get a bigger view than you know, because I mean, you're you're in your own little bubble at all times, right? You you see what you, you see what you see. Um, so it was it was I think sort of an interesting trade of ideas. Um, over the course of that day, but you know, I'll do that. Um, you know, when I when I go back east, I have a client that has a satellite office in New Jersey. My family's back east, and I always take a day and go up and visit them. Um, sometimes it's something as simple as I see an article that is something that I know that they're either personally or professionally interested in, and I'll be like, "Hey, I saw a tweet about this. I was I thought of you. Fire that off." Takes me fifteen seconds, but like. Oh, she was thinking of me. How nice, right? I mean, but that's sort of how I am. I would rather send you an email than have to go and like talk in person. That's just my nature. But um, you know, it's 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 a way to still still stay stay connected with people without being pushy. You know, and you know, I'll show you know if I happen to be passing through your town on business, I'll you know buy you coffee or whatever you know. If I can, but I don't go out of my way to do it. I mean, if I'm there, but it's not like I'm going to be flying. You know, I wouldn't. I mean, I worked for. I know I worked for that one company for six years, and I've never flown to Denver just to hang out and see them. You know. So how do you create a report if you can't see them? If they are in Denver and you've never been. There? Conversation. I mean, really, it's just about making those connections. I mean, <laughs> I have a client. Um, the the large there, there there's mergers and acquisitions and roll ups and all sorts of things but anyway they 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 primarily were in Germany now I'm t dealing more with uh, with uh, some people in Sweden and you know I know none of these people they're in corporate headquarters and just simple things about you know you know talking about you know they want to know about things that have gone on here in the states that you know they've heard about on the news God forbid the politics but you know, but or even just you know, hey, you know, I, I, you know, they, they of course check me out. So you know, they, I saw your website. You know, oh, I didn't realize you had a son. You know, I have, I have a kid too, and like just little things like that. And now we have a connection. So this morning I had an early call with Sweden, and we talked for I don't know ten minutes about our kids and you know what's going on in school and you know how are different how how are their schools different from our schools? What you know what what sort of things do they do? What's the day like? You know dumb stuff in a way but like it's a way that we connect in a you know in a in a different at a different sort of level than just you know so here are those files mm -hmm. one question i constantly get um from people just online reading my blog is is about whether they can break into freelance and work from home uh, and these are like college students who are trying to feel out a career maybe they want to balance sort of home life with working mm -hmm. so they see this opportunity hey I can do all these writing editing projects from home mm -hmm. 
in my spare time. What's your response for this? You don't have nearly as much spare time as you think you do. But if you set it aside as a proper business and you have an office with a door that you can close and you can set boundaries between your professional and your personal life, yeah, it's doable. I've had a home office for 10 years. But, but you started after being in the, in the field for 15 years. Mm -hmm. What about somebody who's brand new? Is something you have to work into? Well, I think I think I know other people who've been in the field and then they try to work from home and they like they they hate it. I mean, but I think it's more your personality, um, how introverted or extroverted you are. Um, some people need the interaction to thrive. I don't. <laughs> um, you know, I will go home from this and I will pass out because you know all of my energy for the day has gone into this. Um, but you know. I, I am perfectly happy. I mean, uh, even when I was in an office, I was perfectly happy being the quiet cube dweller who only emerged for lunch and necessary meetings. You know, um, I, I don't need that interaction. But I, I have friends who are freelancers who tried to make, you know, who'd been in, you know, in house somewhere, tried to make freelancing work for them, and being in a home office setting nearly killed them. And they had to go to a job uh, to a co working uh, space so that they could get out of the house or get that contact and interaction that they that energizes them and invigorates them that I'm like, more power to you, but I don't need that. <laughs> you know? So I think it's more personality than, um, I mean, obviously there's, the, there's making the contacts and it's harder to do if you're starting right out of college because you don't have the network of contacts that you would if you've been out in the workforce and you have people that you already know and work with. But I think as, you know, as the home office thing goes, I think that's just a matter of personality. I think it's more of a norm, too, for, for say, like copy editing rather than writing. So uh, people you know, get certified as copy editors, and they hang out their shingle online, and they get jobs. But uh, technical writing, it doesn't work that way as easily. Yeah. I also think if you're working about this a lot in my previous role, and I think it's very difficult to get a report and think think about the person that can be find your person is reliable, responsible, and professional. Yeah. If you never see them, yeah, it's almost impossible. Even if they do a good job when they're doing this at three o'clock in the night, you still want to see the person. You still want to have at least some contact with them. So it's actually I think it's really difficult to be a graduate and start remote. You know, start working from home constantly because. The manager wants to trust you, and they don't, you know, not that they don't trust in the work that you do, but it's harder. They want to see the person, they want to talk to you, they want to see how you react in certain situations when you interact with a developer, you know, how you are. It's but very difficult to do that. What about like probationary times? Like this sort of fits in line with that. Let's say you're, you're new and you want to, um, the company's on the fence about whether taking you on as a, as a, a, a writer. So you say, I'll, we'll do a two-week trial. Do you ever do any kind of trial probationary period? I mean, now that would almost seem like a, a, a confidence low, but like you're starting out, you don't have any clients? Is that just? I mean, uh, rather, th I mean, I think it would be more of a case of, you know, give me a, give me an, an encapsulated project that you can see how I can manage it. And you know, not only that I have the skills to do the work itself, but time, manage my time, manage my deadlines, interact with the other people. Like, I think, you know, 
giving a small thing because if it's just a matter of like two weeks, well, then you have no responsibility in those two weeks. I mean, it's open-ended, it's nebulous, it's right. But I would, I would say something more encapsulated because then you get a sense of, you know, the person's ability to report in, you know, how are they managing their time? How are they, you know, how are they meeting milestones? How are they working with others? Are they staying on top of things? And it's not, you know, sort of hand wavy, like, you know, okay, for two weeks, here we go, la la la, you know, and then nobody really knows what the outcome should be, right? Because there's not necessarily a product at the end of that, it's just a period. Yeah. Probation is quite common in other fields, you know, you would have a three month probation if you join a big company as free cross of hell. They want to sign you on forever. Right. If they also have probation period, it's quite unheard of. Except for that this is being focus is on the independence. If they, if it feels like you're somebody who really needs to be managed, mm -hmm. then you should not, I mean, it's so it's tricky. Right. That it, maybe your first contracts or your first will be with people who know you from a work thing. But if they are counting on you to pay all your social security and to manage your own health care and manage your time in a way that they aren't expecting employees to do. Mm -hmm. But if you say, I need a trial period, makes it sound too much like you aren't qualified mm -hmm. or capable to do it. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, you don't ask. They ask you to get a trial period. You don't ask for them to trial period. Right, but what I'm saying is, even if they even if they say, you know, well, we'll give you, here's a trial period. Well, the period, what do you, what do you deliver at the end of the period? I mean, it's like you know, yeah. what you know, that doesn't necessarily prove that you can meet deadlines. It just sort of proves that you can show up for the weekly meeting, and you know, like you know, I mean, like you you can be sort of checking the boxes without actually delivering anything, and that doesn't, you know, I mean, I know plenty of freelancers who are deadline people, like they'll sort of la 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 through the period, and then like the night before they are cranking, and it's like I can't work that way, you know. I mean, I'll tell you that I'll have it for you by Friday, and maybe I'll have it for you by Wednesday night, but I'm still gonna hold off until Thursday to give it to you because I don't want to. I, I like to. I like to make you think that I've gotten you know a little bit ahead of schedule, but not so far ahead of schedule that you know it totally resets your expectations. <laughs> sure. Um, with the rise of uh, the tele uh, with the rise of uh, Skype and uh, the other mark, uh, communication process, uh, communications, uh, video communications, has you ever ever tried using that to uh, up, up with the your with the customers for? You know, not really. Um, that, I mean, we've done some meetings where it's, you know, screen shares and things like that. But, you know, nobody really wants you looking at them while you're sitting there talking, really, especially. And I, and especially my European clients, they're very good about the fact that they know that, you know, it's 6 a.m., 6.30 when we're having the calls to, you know, to match up with the various schedules. And it's like, nobody's expecting me to be fully dressed, you know, like they know I'm sitting there in my robe and, you know, like clutching caffeine going, please, just let this be over. <laughs> Um, but you know they're 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 also good about it. They're like they you know they're, they're cool with it. You know they're they're you know because on the flip side they're not working at home at night to meet my schedule. So I mean they they see that that's just where the trade off lies. You know it's a nine hour difference. So you know one of us has to be on personal time to make it work. So by working with India. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>